Hi all and welcome to Conservation Realists, the podcast for real conversations for better conservation. But today is actually going to be a monologue. Every fourth episode is a chance for me to dive a little deeper into some of the ideas that have come up in the interviews, as well as some insights that I've learned from my own experiences. It's basically anything that I think might be interesting and useful to anyone who's broadly interested in conservation. And today I want to talk a bit about power and empowerment in conservation in Myanmar. It's the second of three episodes focusing on Myanmar. Last week we were with Tanda Koji from Myanmar Ocean Project, and next week we will be with Yin Yin Tae from Myanmar Coastal Conservation Lab. And not only did I learn so much from my time in Myanmar, but more significantly, it's a country that's going through a really atrocious and brutal military regime at the moment. And this is affecting people in in countless ways across different sectors. And that does include conservation and my friends over there who work in conservation. And I also want to amplify the really impressive work that people are still doing on the ground there in the face of these highly challenging, traumatizing conditions. And in this episode, you'll also learn a little bit about how the podcast's song, The Green Touch, by Somo Twin, Ziantet, and Min Min came to be. Uh, I am going to take a quick step back and, and remind you all that while I dearly appreciate you even just listening or reading the transcripts, I would really love it if you could take another step and like, uh, share, and comment. Basically, help get the word out, help get the messages out that this podcast is sharing. So any help you could offer there would be much appreciated. So power and empowerment in conservation. Power is so important to consider in pretty much any process involving humans. Um, Whenever you're having interactions between different groups of people, even within the same group of people, there are going to be power dynamics at play. And conservation isn't just about saving cute, fuzzy animals. It is really about control over resources, right? And power plays into who is in a position to make decision about that access, who's in a position to implement and enforce that, and in what ways, and who benefits from those decisions, and who is harmed. Power is so important to think about, and I think it's easy to lose sight of the nuances of power dynamics when you're an outsider to a situation, and also If you are in a position of relative privilege regarding power, it's much easier to kind of see from the other side if you are disadvantaged. It's easier to see the barriers blocking you from fair and equal treatment, from fair and equal participation, than it is if you are someone who already enjoys access to those things and maybe takes them for granted. And empowerment, in the way I'm using it, is the process of facilitating people to access their agency and autonomy. 
So strategically and thoughtfully providing skills and resources and helping to change structures so that more people can access their power and use their power in ways that match their their needs and their own decisions and their own priorities. And I think it's really important when we're talking about empowerment or capacity building that we really avoid having a kind of savior complex about it, you know, not saying that it's not suggesting that it's up to some outside force, some benevolent external actor to bestow power upon people. Because I do know some community organizers and activists um, who don't love that. So when I'm using empowerment, it's, it's very much in a sense of facilitating and then taking a step back and letting people do what they deem fit with the skills and information that they can now access and use. Myanmar is a particularly important case study in power in conservation. So for those who might not be so familiar with the country's history, it was shut off for decades and ruled by an authoritarian government. And yet during those decades, there were some large international conservation non-government organizations, NGOs, operating in the country. So just sit with that a bit. This is a country that's shut off, uh, not a whole lot of international involvement, and yet there are these international conservation groups operating on the ground. I am certainly not attributing particularly malicious intent to these groups. I don't, I'm not personally familiar with the people who were working there at the time or what their agendas were. But whenever a conservation group is working to set area, land, and resources on that land aside for conservation, that is taking the land away from somebody. And in Myanmar, that somebody has happened to be ethnic groups who oppose the authoritarian government. So what we have is a situation where conservation groups have been complicit in helping an authoritarian government land grab away from ethnic groups. Not, not a particularly admirable <laughs> um, outcome to be involved with. And for this, for this reason, in many parts of the country, large conservation organizations, large international conservation organizations are viewed with a lot of distrust. They're really just not welcome there. And thankfully, in the marine realm where I work, there's not quite that history of involvement yet. Uh, marine conservation has really lagged behind terrestrial so there's less of a, a context of mistrust. But anyone coming in to any place where there's been a history like that really needs to be mindful of the really harmful legacy left by actions and actors that came before them. So now let's listen to a clip from the song The Green Touch. And when we come back, I will take you on a little tour of the Gulf of Motama in Myanmar. Jala he, dukapaji e sinko danwe na swinli, lutaro alok yo shwins yarwe peswane, dukyonwe apju selole. 
So, let's travel, in our minds, to the Gulf of Motama. If you look at a map of Myanmar, it's kind of where the country has a little indentation, a big indentation in its coastline. It's this expanse of mudflats and muddy waters fed by four major rivers, and it's actually home to the largest mudflats in Southeast Asia, possibly all of Asia. I'm not 100% sure on that one. Uh, and maybe you're thinking, okay, <laughs> mudflats, great, mud. But we really need to appreciate the mud. This mud is the foundation of a really productive ecosystem with valuable sources of food for migratory shorebirds uh, and other water birds who feed on the invertebrates in the mud. And this includes critically endangered, endangered and threatened shorebird species like the spoonbill sandpiper. These same invertebrates in the benthos are also food for the foundation of fisheries in the area that are important for local people's consumption as well as for markets. There are also Irrawaddy dolphins, humpback dolphins, and finless porpoises frolicking on the coast. There are sea turtles, and I had never known, known before that sea turtles can indeed live in muddy water areas. I want to thank my sea turtle researcher friends for correcting me on that. There are sharks and rays. There are mangrove areas that, while not really extensive in the Gulf of Matama, they are locally important to the villages who live nearby them. And these villages are peopled by communities that rely on fishing and farming for their livelihoods. And in cases where it's really hard for them to make a living off of these sources, they will migrate to big cities or to other countries to seek work there. And these villages are often quite remote, hard to get to. Uh, whatever roads they are able to fashion during dry season get washed out during the rainy season. And so let's imagine that you see two motorbikes driving along this kind of terrain, you know, between rice fields, between scattered villages, along expanses of, of dried mud, um, going through stream beds where the water is mostly gone, but there still is a, a substantial layer of thick, slippery mud. And on one of those motorbikes is my field assistant at the time, Win Tay, and the guy who's driving him. And then the other motorbike is me being driven by another collaborator. And as we're driving along this terrain, this is one of my first visits in Myanmar and my first exposure to fieldwork in the Gulf of Motama, the guy driving the motorbike turns his helmeted head towards me and shouts, you know, Myanmar is not a poor country. We are so rich in resources. It's our government that keeps us poor. And that really resounded with me. That's really a wonderful encapsulation of the importance of power and who controls access to natural resources. So this particular motorbike trip was during my postdoctoral research. 
And I was really interested in how communities are able to be stewards of their own resources. You know, what are the power structures at play? What are the skills and and capacity needs that communities have to be able to carry out monitoring and management of their resources? What are the maybe more intangible things that allow communities to be able to do this successfully and effectively in the long term? And what are things that act as obstacles along the way? Myanmar was an interesting place at the time to look at this because in the mid-2010s, which is when I started visiting there, it was undergoing a process of decentralizing its fisheries management. So being an authoritarian country, everything was going through the central government. But in the 2010s, fisheries management was being delegated more and more to the states and regions, giving them more control over their fisheries. And this was a really exciting step, right? And it also makes community involvement and community rights in managing fisheries seem that much more approachable when you're kind of bringing that power away from being totally concentrated in the central government. And I was also really lucky to be somewhat randomly linked to the group Point B Design and Training, which is a fantastic organization that uses a design thinking approach. And if you don't know what that is, I'll explain it briefly here. It's basically a a participatory, collaborative, co-creation approach of developing solutions, developing projects and solutions for problems alongside the people who are going to use those solutions. Uh, But they use a design thinking approach in their projects related to education, to community needs, and they were really interested in branching out to environmental issues. So I'd been interested in design thinking for a while, a little while. I'd really been interested in visiting Myanmar, which despite me working for years in Southeast Asia, I'd still never visited. And the context of the country happened to align really nicely with my research interests. So it worked out great. So I went there and worked with three of Point B's alumni from their youth design thinking program uh, as field assistants. And none of these youths had experience with conservation, but they were so good at engaging with communities and understanding how to respectfully and responsibly collect information from community members. And so these three young people are Winte. Ang Nain So and Yin Yin, and it was such a pleasure to work with them. And they actually were so motivated by what they learned just from participating in my research that they formed the Myanmar Coastal Conservation Lab as a group within Point B. So this is a youth-led, local youth-led marine conservation group that they just formed. It was never part my intention <laughs> to encourage them to form such a group. I certainly wanted them to leave their experience with me having developed useful skills and having learned more about conservation, but they really took that experience and and made magic with it. And this really resonated with me. This happened relatively early in my time working in Myanmar. And it was the first of, of several <laughs> instances where I saw people who had an underlying passion and interest really flourish when provided with strategic and thoughtfully delivered skills and resources. And they took those inputs and created something really fantastic out of it. You know, they really were empowered. 
they were able to better access their power to realize their own ideas and visions and dreams. Also during my postdoc, I partnered with the Gulf of Motama project, which was based in the Gulf of Motama. <laughs> and it was a multi-sector project with a network activities group, NAG, which is a local organization with a lot of experience working on fisheries governance and empowering and engaging with fishing communities. There was also Helvetas, which is a Swiss-based international organization working on development and with a lot of expertise in developing diversified livelihoods, as well as disaster risk management and um, water health sanitation issues. And there was International Union for Conservation of Nature, IUCN, and they were responsible for the resource management and natural resource management and biodiversity conservation components of the project. And so they very kindly let me do my research in some of their project villages. And then I ended up getting hired by IUCN to help them implement their project components on the ground. And the Gulf of Matama project between these partners was aiming to strengthen the sustainability and resilience of the ecosystems and communities in the Gulf. This was a really exciting project to be a part of. I got to learn from my colleagues who were who had the expertise and connections to connect with politicians on how to draft policies related to natural resource management in this context of, of Myanmar decentralizing its fisheries management, uh, with people who had expertise in working with communities and organizing them and helping them develop these village development committees, VDCs, uh, which were basically the, the focal points, the focal entities for coordinating activities within the village and also representing the village concerns to higher levels at township level uh, committees and entities. And the ideas of, of power and empowerment were interwoven throughout the project's planning as well as what actually happened on the ground. Helping to set up structures and capacity for co-management so a partnership of management between communities and government and other stakeholders in a place where this has not been the mode of, of management at all uh, involves a lot of consideration of underlying power structures and what kind of power structures are desirable and feasible in the future. And then in dealing with the government, there's a lot of power dynamics there. Um, not only are the different government ministries and departments not accustomed to collaborating with each other, which is really necessary if you're trying to manage, say, a mangrove forest, which would fall under the forest department, but it's also important for the Department of Fisheries because mangroves are nurseries, really important nurseries for fisheries. And then there's also the General Administrative Department, GAD, which kind of has really, in reality, the final say on, on what happens to land allocation. If those three entities aren't collaborating, and if there's a power imbalance between them, what emerges in practice is not necessarily going to be what's best for sustainability. And there's the reality that a lot of these agencies, these ministries and departments, as in many other countries, they have the power mandated to them to manage resources, and they don't have the capacity to do so. They are under-resourced, well, not enough personnel, not enough funding, not enough training. And yet those who are on the ground, the community members, um, 
who might be better suited to conduct monitoring because they're, they are there, they're where the problems are happening, uh, they don't have the power to do anything about it. And of course, they, they often do need capacity support as well in terms of building their skills and funding. Another power dynamic that's relevant in the Gulf and sadly relevant in too many other places as well is power held by private sector actors who are not engaging in sustainable or even legal practices. In the Gulf, this takes the form of illegal fishing using stake nets with really fine mesh nets, and these are staked out for kilometers, and they are extremely damaging to local fisheries because they catch everything. They catch a lot of the juveniles. And these are linked to business interests in in one of the relatively large cities for the Gulf of Matama. Similarly, these moneyed private interests seem to have an advantage in the decision-making about what happens to mangrove habitats, which are often given to them to turn into agricultural fields to the detriment of the communities who benefit from the mangroves. At the same time, there are responsible private sector actors who do collaborate with the Gulf of Matama project and have been a real asset and contributor to to shaping fisheries management in the area. And when we're looking at a project that involves interventions related to livelihood, it's really important to think about who, who gets to benefit from those interventions and who doesn't. Similarly, when we're talking about those village development committees, who gets chosen to be on those committees and who gets left out? And how are people chosen And are those people representative of the community? Um, In many cases, the most marginalized folks are probably the least likely to be involved in a committee like that. They probably don't have as much time because maybe they need to work longer hours or harder to, uh, to make a livelihood, to make a living. Maybe they're already marginalized, so they don't feel comfortable in mixed spaces. In other cases, this is not so much the case in the Gulf of Motama, but in other parts of the country, maybe there's a language barrier. Maybe this marginalized group speaks a different language than kind of the the, the majority does. And so you can go into a community and empower it as a whole, uh, but still make some of these power imbalances worse. And some of the marginalized folks in the community might end up being worse off. And when you are kind of, uh, let's say, playing around with power dynamics, let's say you're encouraging more women to be involved in these committees, that can actually have some pretty serious ramifications. Um, In some of our interviews where we were evaluating the project's impacts on communities, some of the women said, you know, I really appreciate that I feel more empowered to contribute to my community. But at the beginning, my husband would get angry that I was no longer focusing on my household duties alone, and we would get in fights, or we almost got divorced, or he would beat me. And so, you know, that's not good. And this is something that I think most people working on gender and conservation have probably encountered. So you need to respect that power dynamics that are in place, even if they are bad or harmful, you can't just come in and expect to switch them easily and smoothly right away. It's a process.
On the whole, it seems like the Gulf of Matama project has done a really great job in empowering the communities with which it's worked. And I know this because I helped implement a qualitative project evaluation method called Most Significant Change, where we collect stories from community members on how the project has impacted their lives. And this is a participatory process in that the community members tell us what they want us to assess. They tell us the topics, the areas or domains where they want us to see what changes have occurred. And so that is also a way of of sharing power, uh, of the community being able to say, you might be this outside project that has a lot of funding and you have a lot of influence, but we're the ones you're working for and, and we want you to see how you're doing along these metrics that are important to us. And wow, I was so impressed with the quality of information we were getting, the richness of information we got from people's stories. And even though a lot of the domains they asked us to evaluate might seem fairly cut and dried, like we want to know about impacts to our livelihoods, we want to assess impacts to our technical skills. One thing that really was a thread throughout most of the stories were those more intangible things of people feeling more confident. That was reported a lot. I feel more confident in my abilities to earn a better livelihood. I feel more confident in my ability to shape my future. I feel more confident in being able to be a leader in my community and being able to communicate with people and being able to represent my community to the government. And this was something that was just so wonderful to see as as people were sharing their stories, just the obvious pride coming from them, emanating from them as they were sharing these really meaningful impacts. And the significance of confidence is something that also really shone through very clearly in another area of my work, which was my responsibility to develop a functional and sustainable research and conservation training program. So the project was originally going to um, just give small research grants to local university research teams to conduct management-relevant research. It quickly became clear that these research teams, a lot of them didn't have the capacity to conduct the kind of caliber of research that was needed for this, but they were really, really eager to learn. And so my job became quickly, okay, how do we build capacity in a meaningful way for this kind of research? And when we're talking about research, that's also power, the ability to collect information, to synthesize information, and to share that information is a form of power, right? And so we want people to be able to do this on the ground where they are and not have to rely on some external party, some external consultant to come in and do it for them. Um, And speaking of power dynamics, anyone who's worked at a university probably can relate to the fact that there were a lot of power dynamics at play in the universities with which we partnered. And it really made it difficult to focus on faculty as the kind of the target participants of this training program. They were overworked, underpaid, they were often transferred to other universities, and internal politics and drama really um, made it hard for me to know that I'd have a consistent cohort of people attending a set number of trainings. Uh, So I couldn't really track their progress over time. 
And there was someone else who was working in a similar position with another university, another organization in Myanmar, and, and they ended up quitting because it was so impossible to, to get anything meaningful done. So uh, I was able to work with Point B. Uh, I was able to subcontract them into this project, into the Gulf of Matama project. And we developed a training program that really focused on students, on building the capacity of bachelor students, graduate students, as well as recent graduates. And we came up with what I call a pyramid scheme for good. I realized I couldn't be the one delivering all the trainings myself. That was not sustainable uh, in any sense of the word. So I started off by training the core team, the dream team, so in not only the content of the training, but also how to deliver the trainings. And they and two uh, of the kind of recent graduate interns would receive this really um, intensive coaching. And then we would co-teach those same trainings to the university interns. And as they gained more and more experience teaching that a given training, I would fade out my involvement until they were able to teach autonomously. And then they were able to train some of the university interns to then deliver that training in future years. It was a trickle-down effect that actually really worked. And it was fantastic to see, like these young people just absolutely blossomed to take the resources and skills that were shared with them and make so much more of them. For example, the most significant change evaluation method that I mentioned earlier, I was in charge of developing that, you know, applying it to the Gulf of Matama context and, and overseeing the initial implementation. But MCCL now conducts that work on their own. And I just help here and there with analysis and report writing. But Yin Yin has learned to not only do this approach herself, but also to train other youths to conduct this evaluation research. And through a similar process, MCCL has now gotten to a point where they are running a number of different activities related to conservation and community engagement in the Gulf. What I really want to emphasize here is, again, the idea of confidence. So that at the end of each batch or cohort of interns, we have them fill out a questionnaire um, evaluating their experience with the program, basically asking, you know, how have your skills changed, if at all, for topics XYZ, etc. And several of our interns in the first batch wrote in the other section, they wrote in confidence, I feel more confident. How wonderful is that, that they not only did they feel more confident, but it was noticeable enough that they wanted to write that down in their evaluation of the program. And I could see it. It was so it was so amazing to see these young people really blossom in confidence and to see how much that accelerated their ability to apply other things that they learned. So as we're designing anything to do with empowerment or, or capacity building, it's important to think beyond kind of the nuts and bolts of we're going to teach them XYZ technical skills and also pay attention to, are we really doing as much as we can to foster a sense of confidence? And on that note, two approaches that really allowed us to be an effective program and I've used effectively in, in my consulting work since is the importance of teaching people how to teach and teaching people how to learn. 
and like confidence, those are two skills that are cross-cutting and that will amplify anything that people are able to do with additional skills and resources that are provided to them. So teaching people how to teach, that was the pyramid scheme we came up with, right? Like we, we empowered these young people to teach each other and to teach others without having to wait for some kind of external party to come in and be responsible for that. Learning how to learn is something that we encourage and fostered through the structure of our program. So I knew that there was no way I could train people who had been through a really restrictive education system. I couldn't train them in the same way I'd been trained over many, many, maybe too many years of education. So I really wanted to strip it down. Like, How can we most effectively and efficiently empower these young researchers to be the best researchers they can be? And we identified three pillars, uh, three mindsets, one being mindfulness, another being critical thinking, and another being systems thinking. And systems thinking, you'll definitely hear more about that in this series, but it's the idea of understanding the different components and interactions between those components in any system where you're working. So talking about fisheries, it's a fish, it's a fisherman, it's the communities, it's the markets, it's the... uh, It's the habitats, it's climate change, it's other impacts that might be harming the fish, so on and so forth. And these three pillars really guided how we taught any of our trainings. We first introduced them to the basics to develop their skills in those basics. And then each subsequent training, even if it was a fairly specific skill that we were teaching, we emphasized how it connected to the ideas of mindfulness, critical thinking, and systems thinking. We helped create a structure into which they could fit anything that they learned and kind of have it make sense in a systematic way. And so I noticed that our participants became better learners, and this is something that's going to help them no matter what field they're in, no matter what future trainings they're in, it's going to help them be more informed and thoughtful citizens, more informed and thoughtful decision makers. And for me, that's huge. And on the topic of the power of information and accessing information, I want to talk about the last activity that I uh, coordinated while I was still working in country. And it's really near and dear to my heart. And that's the research symposium for stakeholders that we put on. And unfortunately, sharing research with stakeholders meant, you know, long days of endless PowerPoint slides of data presented without much context and without much explanation for the implications of those data. And I had tried to kind of tweak that around over my time with IUCN. I tried to um, make stakeholder consultations about research a lot more interactive, and that had succeeded. But for this final activity, I really wanted to create a, a space where people could meaningfully talk about the research they were doing and stakeholders could give them feedback face-to-face without having to wait for a a too brief and very formal question and answer session. So we decided to do an interactive set of poster sessions. Each of the research teams had to make a poster and we taught them, you know, how do you come up with the key points that you want to distill and present in a poster? Uh, Because you're very limited with space. And we taught them how to make posters um, you know, in PowerPoint, for example. And I want to give a shout out to Carlito and Alice from Environmental Defense Fund at the time, who 
made great contributions to this training on posters and, and shared examples from some of EDF's projects around the world with our participants. It was really fantastic. And then we had these poster sessions where stakeholders could wander around, talk face-to-face with the researchers. The researchers could explain their, their research and focus in on the important points directly with the people for whom that research would have significance. And so we had community members, government uh, representatives, private sector people, as well as just people, lay people from the general public uh, coming by and really engaging in these lively discussions. And then we'd had breakout groups where people could discuss more specific or more focused topic uh, in between each of the poster sessions. And it was a hit. It was really, uh, really well received. You know, we had to scramble to find extra, extra chairs in the hotel to accommodate everyone who showed up. And there were requests to repeat this on a yearly basis. Um, unfortunately, COVID happened a few months later, and then the coup happened a year after that. But I really am so thrilled with how that event went because sharing information in an accessible way and in a way that people can give their feedback on is sharing power. And I could go more at length uh, (laughs) into my experiences with the Gulf of Matama project, but I don't want to make this too long. I'm surprised at how long it is already. I will say that at this symposium, I was assisted by a wonderful young translator who was also an alumni from the Point B Design Thinking Program, and his name is Somo Twin. And we became friends on Facebook, and I learned through Facebook that he is a really talented musician. And that's how the song The Green Touch for this podcast came to be. His music really reminds me of just strolling around the streets of Molomiain City, where I was based, or Yangon, um, other places that I visited in Myanmar, and often hearing young people hanging out, playing guitar, and singing in this just beautiful style. And it just brings back really nice feelings of, of being in a place, making a difference, and yes, <laughs> being overworked and burned out, but also feeling very fulfilled in what I was doing as well as just appreciating the, the beauty of, of what young people are able to do, what they're able to create. And so it's very special for me that he and his collaborators were able to make this song for this podcast. To be honest, working in Myanmar was, was not the easiest as a foreigner. I was really restricted in where I could go. It was hard for me to get permission to stay overnight in villages where I was conducting research, which is unlike anywhere I worked. Um, I was working really hard. I definitely burned out. Uh, I lost my father. He passed away while I was working there. I was able to come home and, and be by his side. But, you know, going through that grieving period was really tough. Um, but I've learned so much from my time in Myanmar, way more than I can fit into an extended monologue. And it, it really means a lot to me, the work I was able to do and the people I was able to meet and the things I was able to witness and learn. It was such an exciting time to work there. And one thing that I learned is that many of us who have the privilege, who have the power of a lot of skills and knowledge and experience, we can really make a difference with the skills, knowledge, and experience that we possess. There's no need to have imposter syndrome. You can go 
somewhere where they need your skills and you can help amplify the power of other people through sharing those skills. So I really encourage those of you who are in these positions of relative privilege to think about what kind of mutual aid you can provide. You know, how can you apply your skills in a way that's really useful and valuable on the ground, valuable beyond anything that you might be able to predict. And it's it's really heart-wrenching to see what Myanmar is going through now. And I fully acknowledge that I am a foreigner. I don't live there anymore. I cannot imagine what it feels like to be from Myanmar, to be in the country, watching all of this unfold. There are some horrible atrocities being committed around the country. And, you know, one of our former interns, a super bright young man, one of the the brightest stars I've come across, he was arrested by the military for his part in student protests, and he was in prison for six months. And some of his peers, some of the students in his department were killed in the protests. Some of my favorite faculty who I got to work with had to go into hiding. And for a while, it seemed like everything that we had built up with Point B and with Gulf of Matamar Project, at least in my area of work, it just felt like it was being lost. And that was really, that was really tough to see. But what was the most difficult was to see my young colleagues feel like their their futures had been taken from them. You know, they they got to grow into this time of, of flourishing in the, the mid-2010s and, and learn so much and be exposed to opportunities. And there was unprecedented access to the internet. And to feel this this window of of optimism and hope and opportunity suddenly just shut on them. It's just, um, it's really terrible. At the same time, it's those young people, as well as my other colleagues who continue to do amazing work in Myanmar. um, It's these young people who really give me hope, not just for their country, but really help me stay optimistic about the state of the world in general, their drive and dedication and strength in the face of this really horrifying context, it just astounds me. Similarly, community members who are really suffering from the double hit of COVID and the coup, they're still engaged and interested in managing their resources. I also need to add that a lot of my university colleagues in Myanmar have resigned from their positions because the universities are government entities. And so those faculty members who didn't want to support this military regime resigned as part of the civil disobedience movement. And they have faced very serious repercussions for this. It's very hard for them to find jobs that match their their livelihood needs, jobs that match their qualifications and experience. That's a really brave thing to do, and so many of them have done it. And uh, I don't know what else I can do but just say that I stand in solidarity with them, as little as that might mean from a practical standpoint. But this time of crisis really underlines the fact that whenever we're trying to facilitate meaningful change somewhere, we need to do it in a way 
that's sustainable. We need to do it in a way that can't be taken away by a regime change. Fostering confidence and teaching people how to teach and teaching people how to learn are not things that are easily taken away by a military coup. There's a lot to learn about power and empowerment and conservation in Myanmar, apart from the Gulf of Matama. Uh, I really encourage everybody to Google the Ridge Tarif project in Tenantari region. This was a large project proposed by international organizations that would set, I think, 30-some percent of the region in protected areas, which was successfully blocked by local environmental activist groups who had had really negative interactions with conservation organizations working with the central government in the past. So that's a really instructive and powerful example. I would also recommend looking up the Salween Peace Park, which is a really fantastic example of an ethnic group running a a conservation area effectively and in a way that respects their rights, their needs, their traditions and heritage. Also in 2017, the country's first locally managed marine areas, or LMMAs, were declared in the Mieke Archipelago, uh, also in Tenantari region. Candidly, I don't know the status of these now, but it was an exciting step for marine conservation in Myanmar, and uh, Fauna and Flora International played a large role in, in helping facilitate that and organize that alongside the communities. So I, I also recommend looking that up and then learning more about that. And I'll put some links in the episode notes as well. I kind of did this extemporaneously. I had an outline, but no script. I I hope it was coherent and I hope that you learned something from it. Uh, I can't believe I just spoke for almost 45 minutes with just me, myself, and I. But thank you so much for listening and please pay attention to what's going on in Myanmar. Pay attention to what our colleagues in Myanmar are doing and realize that you can really make a difference with the skills and privilege that you have already. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back next week with a great conversation with Yin Yin Tae from Myanmar Coastal Conservation Lab. ยาลาเฮตุกปาจีเยสิงโคดานวยนาสวนเลยลูตาโรอาลอกเปียวชวนสยาด้วยเปสวนเนตุเปียวนวยอาผิวเซลโลเลยเซยลันเนลับปาจ
ตบาวายเมญูสัตตอปาโบเลตบาวายเจยาเรมิตินายมาสิเมนะลงนาไตเมนตุยจีเลอจุไทเตงจาโซนากัมมาเลเมยเยนวิตุยเจโนเนลี ชาวเลเมมิตาสุกีโกมาวนมาไตเบเลอเวเนตุยสะลุเตซองกาเลเตเตเฮลูไดมากูซิตาวอชิเบโดบาเซยูเนโอจาเปลไลปาเน Mingasalo ตุไทเตงจาโซนากัมมาเลเมยเอ็นวิตุยเจโนเนลีปาวุจินลัปปาลาโบเยละลันโลกูบาเลปาวายเอ็นยูสะตอปาโบเลบาวายเตยาเรมิตินายมาเซเมนะลงนาไตเมนตุยจีเลบาวุจินลัปปาลาโบเยละลันโลกูบาเลตบาวายเอ็มยูสะตอปาโบเลตบาวายเตยาเร